Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. I'm Emily, and with me is Pastor Zach. This week, your sermon covered Genesis 6, verse 9 through 7, verse 24. How long did it take to build the ark? We're not given an exact time period, but there's some clues that the text gives us that we can put some rough parameters, at least around how long it it would have taken. We're told that Noah starts having children when he's 500 years old. Japheth is the first of his children. Shem is the second of his children. We then read after the flood that Shem is 100 years old. Uh, when he has his first son. He has his first son two years after the flood. So during the flood, Shem is 98 years old. Now, when God tells Noah that he's going to destroy the world with a flood and he needs to build an ark and that Noah is going to get to go in it and that Noah's wife is going to get to go in it, God also says that Noah, your sons and their wives will get to go into the ark. So apparently Noah has had his sons and his sons have had sufficient time to grow up and marry before they're warned of this coming flood and the need to build the ark. So if we were to just put some rough figures on it and say that at the very least, maybe Noah's sons are in their early to mid-20s when they get married and they're all alive at that point. So Ham is also born. We probably have a window of between 75 and 55 years that it takes Noah and his sons to build the ark um, since they were warned from God before the flood starts. So we're probably looking at around 75 to 50 years or so. Does Methuselah die in the flood? You know, if you were to look at the genealogy there in Genesis chapter 5 and to run out the dates... Basically, what we find is that the last year of Methuselah's life is the same year that the flood comes. So whether Methuselah dies prior to the flood coming or Methuselah dies during the flood, uh, we're not exactly sure. Every other patriarch that's listed uh, in the pre-flood genealogy is dead prior to the coming of the flood, except for Methuselah. It's interesting if you read um, some of the early Jewish literature There's speculation that the reason that God gives a seven-day warning to Noah, get in the ark for in seven days, I'm going to bring a flood on the earth. There's speculation that that seven days is the time of the funeral mourning after Methuselah had died. Now, that is rampant speculation. There's nothing there in the biblical text to suggest that that's the reason uh, for the seven-day the seven day warning. In fact, I don't think it has any connection to Methuselah at all. I think, in reality, God is just telling Noah, it's time to get in the ark. It's going to take a little bit of time for you, your family, all of these animals to get situated in the ark. So I'm giving you a seven-day heads up. Um, I think that's more likely the reason. And yet, there is discussion going on in the early Jewish text about what happened to Methuselah. We don't know exactly. I think if we were to take an informed guess, given that the godly line is the line of Seth that we're given there in Genesis chapter 5, I think it more than likely that Methuselah has died of natural causes before the flood begins, but it's in the same year that the flood comes on the earth. Why is it important that the flood narrative is not a myth? Well, I think in part, number one, because as we look at the account of the Old Testament, it's based upon an understanding that we are to treat Genesis as a historical narration. And so once we begin to open up the thought process that perhaps Genesis is not describing literal events, it undoes the very foundation upon which the rest of the Old Testament is built. But also the New Testament 
builds our understanding of the certainty of God's final judgment on the world, on the reality that God has already destroyed the world once, that God made a promise to Noah that he was going to destroy the earth, that he fulfilled his promise, and that that warning stands as an enduring testament to humankind. Understand this, God is a holy, just, righteous God. He acts against sin, and he is fully capable of destroying the earth. He's done it before. He promises to do it again in a different way. Therefore, know for sure that judgment will one day finally come. And that warning loses all of its significance if the flood never actually happened. If it's simply a religious myth, a fable, a story, then we have no certainty that God is going to do what he has already done. The The flood is a warning insofar as it is actually true. Why is it important that it was a global flood? Well, I think as we read the text, it's incredible how much Noah emphasizes the scope of the destruction that's in the flood. He says that every living thing under the face of the heavens was blotted out and whose nostrils was the breath of life. Further, there's this emphasis multiple times in the latter part of chapter 7 that all of the mountains were covered. And First he says all the mountains were covered and then Moses loops back on that thought and says that the, the mountaintops were covered with cubits and cubits of water on top of the mountain peaks. And, and I think the reason for that is for the reader to understand there was no place on the whole of the earth that humankind was able to go for refuge. They couldn't outrun the floodwaters. They couldn't outclimb the flood. The whole surface of the earth was covered in water. And that echoes back to Genesis chapter 1 when there was no distinction between the water and the land. It was one huge chaotic mess that God separates the land from the waters. And God in the flood recreates that chaotic wasteland environment of water uh, in, in, the, in the judgment. I think also we'd be left with the question of why bother building an ark at all if a migration would have solved the problem. If it's like, hey, you know what, Noah, I'm going to bring a whole bunch of animals. You and your family have about a 75-year head start. Go and travel across you know, the continents and, and get yourself to a place where uh, I'm not going to bring the floodwaters. That seems a much more reasonable solution than devote the next 70 years of your life to this massive construction project. So if it wasn't a global flood, what is even the purpose of the ark? That seems to be a ridiculous inefficiency if this is not, as Genesis claims, a global flood event. What does it mean when Noah and other Old Testament men are referred to as righteous when at one point or another they all had sinned? Yeah, it's an important question. The Old Testament, when it calls the men and women uh, of the heroes of the faith, righteous. It is not a statement of moral perfection or sinlessness. They have a sin nature that they've received from Adam. They've all committed sins. We see accounts of those sins frequently in the Old Testament. So what does that term righteous mean? In Genesis chapter 15, a text will come up on uh, relatively soon in our study of Genesis. We read that Abraham believed God and it was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Uh, Paul will pick up on this also in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, when he's speaking of this doctrine of imputed righteousness. He'll quote that text from Genesis 15 and point out that Abraham wasn't saved as a result of Abraham's works. It's not though as though Abraham was just so perfect and did all the right things, and therefore he was righteous in his own perfection. Instead, it was Abraham's faith that God counted to Abraham as righteousness. And this is that idea of imputation, that God credits on our account something that belongs to him, righteousness, on account of our faith in God's promises. So because Abraham believed God's promises, 
God counted that to Abraham as righteousness. In the same way that everyone who believes in Christ, it's not a righteousness that we have in and of ourselves, but Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to us because we have believed in Christ. The Old Testament patriarchs and the, the heroes of the faith, men and women, are saved, are credited with righteousness when they believe in God's promises. Now, that means that they are eventually going to be saved in the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So they are they are covered in Christ's righteousness. They are believing that God will deliver them and through them humanity in the coming of the promised seed of the woman. And therefore, it is that belief in God and, and choosing to walk in faithfulness to God's promises by which the Old Testament uh, men and women of the faith are called righteous. In the genealogies found in Genesis 4 and 5, Moses informs us of the father's names, ages, and individual offspring. Many times the ages of the fathers would be quite old, so is it logical to assume that the listed offspring isn't actually their firstborn, as they would probably be um, married and had conceived much earlier or at a younger age? Yeah, that's a fascinating thing to consider. I think as we look at the timeline of, of men and women living before the flood, we of course find these incredible lifespans of hundreds and hundreds of years, close to a thousand years in the cases of, of many of these men that are recorded. And so I think we need, as we look at that, to expand our understanding of what their biological you know, clocks, for lack of a better term, would have looked like. Their aging process clearly happening at a very different rate than uh, what our process looks like today. And so I think when, when we think of a 500-year-old person, one, we can't even think in such terms. But in, in terms of biblical life expectancies, we're talking about somebody really in the prime of their life. And I think physically speaking, we have reason to think that that was probably what was happening in the the physical life expectancies of these people. We read that Japheth is, is Noah's first son. He's born in the 500th year of Noah's life. So at least in Noah's case, we know that his first child was born when he was um, 500 years old. It would also be atypical in Hebrew narrative genealogies to record anything other than the firstborn child uh, as being the head of the genealogy. Now, that's not to say it's inconceivable that that happens. Uh, After all, um, Seth is the son of Adam that's recorded in that genealogy there, and he's at least the third of Adam's children, so it's not unheard of. But I think we can assume, given the normal paradigm and patterns of these genealogies, that these are firstborn sons that are being uh, recorded there. And we just need to keep in mind, 500 years in biblical times pre-flood, this was more like being in the prime of your life than it was being a ridiculous age. So most likely would have been their firstborn and they would have just had it later in life than what we typically have today. Exactly. Yep. If someone is not showing fruit and living in sin, is it possible that the person was never actually saved or had somehow lost their salvation? Hmm. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit on Sunday. I made the comment that there is no such thing as an inactive faith, uh, that faith is revealed in its works. So we see Noah's faith operative in his obedience to God's commands throughout the text. We see that also referenced in the book of James, of course, that faith without works is dead. And that's not to say that our faith is um, produced by our works. It's the other way around. Our faith 
is productive. It produces works. And so a, a, a faith that doesn't produce the good works of living in the fruit of the Spirit uh, reveals that faith is just an intellectual set of propositions that are believed, not a, transfor- not a transformation of the heart, mind, and behavior, which is what real faith is. And so I think in answer to that question, f- faith that isn't fruitful is not real. It, it's dead. Uh, and so it, it might be that somebody has claimed to believe something that they don't really believe. Uh, it could be the case that somebody um, wants to affirm a set of theological truths, but doesn't really want to submit their heart and their mind to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's easy to say that we believe, but when belief transforms our lives and we don't see that transformation happening in the life of someone who continues to live and pursue their sin, I think what we find is that we have a faith that is without works, which is what James calls dead. Now, we don't believe that it's possible for someone to lose their salvation once God has claimed someone as his own. Uh, as, as Jesus says, who can snatch them out of my father's hand? And so I, th- I think when we see inactive faith, it's instead an indicator, an indicator that genuine faith was never present to begin with. If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning to questions at westcanon.org. We'll see you next week.